Good morning. Come on back in and find your seats. And um, this is turning out so far so good to be a great, great day for me. I woke up early, had some coffee, which is always good. Justin put a brisket on my Primo smoker. Got that rolling. Ran five miles. Got to come be with church family to sing, get to preach God's Word, which I love to do. Uh, Going to have some family and friends over this afternoon and evening to eat the brisket, assuming it comes out all right. Uh, Tiger Woods is in the hunt, which it's been a long time, so I'm excited about watching him. And maybe best of all, an old buddy of mine, Kirk Heiser, right over here, uh, came to see me and to hear me preach. Kirk and I grew up together in Plano, and uh, we played uh, football together for the Plano Wildcats, um, and better than that, Uh, we were seeking to follow Jesus together. Some of you have heard me talk about student venture, my student venture days in high school. Uh, You've heard me talk about Paul Roberts coming to our football team meeting and sharing the gospel and then um, saying, me going to the Bible study and Paul saying, hey, Mitch is good. Can we meet at your house next week? And so I said, sure. And he said, okay, invite some buddies. And so I began to invite some buddies. And I think we might have met at our house for a few times and then it was over to Kirk's house for the next two and a half years. And um, he had a kind of a cool room in the back with a pool table and all kinds of stuff. And uh, for two and a half years, Paul Roberts built into our lives and taught us about Christ and the gospel and all kind of good stuff. So Kirk went on to Texas A&M. There you have it. And uh, he's been in the Clear Lake area in and around the NASA world for the last 20 years wife and five kiddos, and so he is busy, but uh, he's here with us today, and I'm glad. If you have your Bible, please turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. If you're new with us, we are making our way slowly but surely through the book of Acts. It is the story of the early church after Jesus died, rose, and ascended back into heaven. What happened next? And the book of Acts tells us. It's the story of the early church after Jesus died, rose, and ascended into heaven. And if you've been with us, you've seen that we've seen the birth of the church in Jerusalem from chapter 1, verse 1 to 247. That's the birth of the church. Jesus ascending into heaven, pouring out his spirit into the lives of his people. They begin to proclaim Christ. 3,000 people believe And they are off and running. The the church is birthed. And at the end of that, Luke gives us a progress report in 247. The Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. The next section that we just finished last week, 3-1 to 6-7, is the expansion of the church in Jerusalem. The birth of the church and then the expansion of the church. And we saw the church press forward through persecution, through moral corruption through the threat of distraction in order to fill the city of Jerusalem with this teaching. And in chapter 6, verse 7, when that section came to a close, we saw the progress report. The, Lord, the Word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. This next section is 6-8 all the way through 9-31. And it is the extension of the church to Judea, Samaria, Galilee. Now if you're familiar with the New Testament map, 
Jerusalem, of course, is a city. And it, it sits within this larger area called Judea. And just north of Judea is Samaria. And just north of Samaria is Galilee. And so from this point on, through the end of the book, we're going to see the church extend. It was birthed in Jerusalem, expanded in Jerusalem, and now it will extend to Judea, Samaria, Galilee, extend to Antioch, extend to Asia Minor, extend to the Aegean Sea, extend all the way to Rome. There are three main characters in this section. If you look in chapter 6, verse 8, and Stephen, full of grace and power. If you look over in chapter 8, verse 5, Philip, went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. And then in chapter 9, verse 1, now Saul. And if you're familiar with the New Testament story, this Saul is a great persecutor of the church. Jesus will change his life and he will become the apostle Paul. And at the end of this section in 931, we get another progress report. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. So this section, the extension of the church, we're going to see the gospel now burst out of Jerusalem and get going to the ends of the earth. And this section is marked by these three important individuals. We'll look at Stephen this morning. He's going to preach a message and die a death that has given hope to great commissioned people now for 2,000 years. We'll look at Philip, the great evangelist, if you will, who takes the gospel to the Samaritans. He'll leave out of Jerusalem and even out of Judea and go a bit further north to the Samaritans, the hated Samaritans. That'll be a big deal. And then, of course, Saul this great enemy of the gospel, it is as if God will slay his enemy and make this great persecutor into a great proclaimer. And he will say to him in chapter 9, you will take my name to the Gentiles. Jews, Samaritans, to the Gentile world. And So let's zero in on Stephen if we can. We have lots to cover. Not only we're we going from chapter 6, verse 8, all the way, yeah, 6, 8, all the way to chapter 8, verse 4, but chapter 7 is long. So we need to move fast. So, Stephen, in his sermon, whoop, chapter 6, verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. They, dragged, they came up to him, dragged him away, and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. 
For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. Fixing their gaze on him, all were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. We don't have much time to look into the details here, but I want you to notice at least a couple things. They are accusing him of speaking against this place. That place is the temple. The temple there in Jerusalem, where under the old covenant, God's presence dwelt among his people. And they're accusing him of speaking against this law. Jesus is fo- or Stephen is following in the footsteps of his master, who essentially said, This temple is going to be replaced with a new temple. It's got, not going to be made of rocks and stones, it's going to be made up of living stones, my people. And my spirit will begin to dwell in my people. It will not dwell in this place, the temple. Remember that Jesus said not a stone would be left standing in that temple in Jerusalem. He was going to be building something new. The old covenant temple, which was a good thing and a God-ordained thing, was all the while meant to point to Him. And now that He was here, things would be different and against the law. The law itself was good and holy and righteous, but it pointed to Him. He fulfilled it. And things would change when He came upon the scene. Leadership in Israel couldn't get it. And they were confused at the stance that Stephen was taking. He was speaking against this place and against the law. Verse 15 is interesting. I think it is miraculous. Fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. You remember in the Old Testament, whenever Moses would go up to the mountain, he would come down and his face would shine. And I think God may here be setting up Stephen before the council. They were accusing him of speaking against Moses and against the law. And God, if you will, puts his hand upon his servant Stephen and says, My man Moses, my man Stephen. The high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, now we get this long sermon, if you will, from Stephen, his answer to the high priest about these accusations. And there are no doubt a number of themes that run through this sermon. But I think, that probably the the main one, I don't think it's unfair to say that. Well, the one that we're going to talk about most this morning, let's put it like that. You may say, hey, that, that there's a different main theme here. Is going to deal with this accusation that he was speaking against this place. We're going to race through this sermon, but but Stephen is going to trace Old Testament history. And he's going to show that God Himself has never been tied to any one place. He's always been a God on the move. 
He's always been free to roam wherever His sovereign purposes would take Him. He's never been tied, locked down, held in to any one place. Let's watch it, and then we'll ponder it. The first in chapter 7, verse 2 to 8, is going to be focused in on Abraham. I'm going to read fast, but I'll make some points along the way. Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Mesopotamia is way out east between the Euphrates and the Tigris River. It's not in Jerusalem. It's not even in Israel. It's way east. Before he lived in Haran and said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans, that's Mesopotamia, and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God removed him into this country in which you are now living, Israel. But God gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot on the ground. And yet, even when he had no child, God promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land, that's Egypt. They would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. It would have been Mount Sinai. And he gave him, God gave him covenant, the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Example number one, God appeared to Abraham way out east in Mesopotamia. And even when he was in Haran, God appeared to him there and called him from there as well and brought him into the land but said, hey, listen, your descendants are going to be out of this place for some 400 years, but, but I will judge that place. I will work also even in Egypt. God appeared. God spoke. God sent. God promised. God punished. God rescued. God called and moved and led Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees up north to Haran, from Haran into the land of Canaan, from Canaan down into Egypt, from Egypt back into Canaan. In the case of Abraham, God was never tied to any one place. Next is Joseph. In verse 9 down through 16, the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. This is down south and to the west. This is outside the land of Israel. Certainly outside of Jerusalem. And yet God was with him. Rescued him from all his afflictions. Granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers passed away. From there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Now that's a lot of reading in particular if you're not familiar with the story. Lots of, ugh. 
Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had these 12 sons. And Joseph was Jacob's favorite, and the brothers didn't like it. And they got rid of Joseph, and he ended up down in Egypt. And yet God was with him, and God exalted him. And Joseph became, if you will, second in command over all of Egypt. And a famine hit, not only down in Egypt, but also in Canaan. And Jacob and the brothers found out that there was food down in Egypt. And so they went down there to find food, and they were reunited with their brother Joseph, and the brothers went back and said, Daddy, there's food down there, and Jacob, or Joseph is down there. And so Jacob and the brothers and their families came and lived in Egypt. God has never been tied to any one place. He was with Abraham way out in Mesopotamia, and he was with Joseph and the brothers and even Daddy Jacob down in Egypt. Third is Moses, the exodus and the wilderness wanderings. And just for kicks, in those verses 9 to 16, Egypt is mentioned six times by Stephen. Verse 17, we've got a lot to read here, but as the time of promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. So God is with his people. He's fulfilling his promises to multiply them greatly, even while they're outside the land down in Egypt. There arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race, mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born. He was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. After he'd been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. He was a man of power and words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. So this baby Moses is born, and he's raised and reared in this Egyptian palace and yet when he was 40 years old, he, he began to feel a heartbeat for his people there in Israel. Things were going hard for them because of this Pharaoh that had arose. So he went to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him, took vengeance on the oppressor, oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand on the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting each other, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away and said, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look, but the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I've certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans. I've come down to rescue them. Come now and I will send you to Egypt. God sees his people in Egypt. He's with and speaks to his servant Moses when he is in 
the Midian in Midian and in the wilderness. Verse 35, this Moses whom you disowned saying, this is Stephen speaking again, this Moses whom they disowned saying, who made you a ruler and a judge is the one whom God sent to be both ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. God is with his man, Moses. God is with his people, Israel, wherever they are. He's not tied to any one place. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai, who was with our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. At that time, they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, it was not to me that you, off- that they- that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it? O house of Israel, you also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of Ramphah, the images which you were made to worship them. I will also remove you beyond Babylon. So, I think this is just to make the point, this theme of God with his people wherever they have been is not the only theme. There's also this theme of rejection of God's servants throughout the Old Testament, which he's bringing, about to bring to bear that they rejected Jesus. But then finally, David, Solomon, and the establishment of the monarchy. In verse 44, so God was with the people, with Moses, he led the people out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, in the wilderness. God was with them. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness. This was that tent-like structure. The tabernacle that they would erect with its furniture pieces. And God would dwell among his people in the tabernacle. Just as he spoke to Moses, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. So Moses died. Joshua's the new leader. Joshua leads the people into the land. They bring the tabernacle in. And down until the time of David, in verse 46, David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob dwelling place. We're tying all the way back now to this accusation. You're speaking against this holy place. You're speaking against this place. So Stephen has brought us all the way back now. God was with Abraham in Mesopotamia. God was with Joseph in Egypt. God was with Moses in the wilderness And now when they've entered into the land, back into the land, David wants to build God a dwelling place. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. So God said to David, no, but your son will build it. And Solomon did. The glorious temple. No longer a tabernacle, no longer this tent-like structure, but this beautiful, massive, 
magnificent temple. Verse 48, however, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. And he quotes Isaiah, heaven is my throne and the earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? He could have quoted, no doubt, he knew it. But even when Solomon built the temple, according to God's clear instructions, and even when he dedicated the temple and was praying to God, in 1 Kings chapter 8, Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word, I pray, be confirmed which you have spoken to your servant, my father David. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. Solomon even knew when he built it and dedicated it to the Lord, this place will not contain him. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of your prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. So on the whole, he's answering their accusations. You speak against this place and against the law. God's never been tied to any one place. And there's this sad theme all throughout the history of Israel of its leaders turning away from God's law. And the one who fulfilled the law came and they turned away from him too. They betrayed him and they murdered him. You received the laws ordained by angels and yet you did not keep it. We're going to come back to this sermon, but quickly, Stephen's death. And when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God. Not everybody gets to see what Stephen saw. In Ezekiel chapter 1, the heavens opened and Ezekiel got to see. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah got to see. In in Revelation chapter 1, John got to see. On this occasion, Stephen gets to see. Being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, Maybe many of you are familiar with this, but maybe some of you, this will be brand new. This is the only time in the New Testament where Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. He's always what? Seated. He came, he lived, he died accomplished salvation for His people. God raised Him from the dead. 
He ascended into heaven, exalted, and sat down at the Father's right hand. His work of redemption complete. It's an incredible picture of sitting down, having completed His work at a place of absolute authority and exaltation. But here is Stephen. One of his little birds that's about to fall to the ground. He stands. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covering their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. If you've been keeping up, they arrest the apostles and threaten them, release them. They arrest them again, threaten them, and flog them and release them. There's no threatening Stephen and there's no mere flogging and releasing. Things are heating up. They're going to kill him. He's the first Christian martyr. They began stoning him and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. We'll get to him in a few weeks, but there's his first mention. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. This man is going to die an amazing death. Who else, in his last words, said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Jesus. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Who also said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus. This brother is something else. Having said this, he fell asleep. incredible language he's getting stoned to death Lord Jesus receive my spirit Lord don't hold this against them and he dies Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, and on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. So great persecution arises because of Stephen's death. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. How great is that? Because guess what they're going to do? Down in verse 4, Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. This is that same theme we've seen. Warn us, we'll keep preaching. Threaten us, we'll keep preaching. Flog us, we'll keep preaching. Kill our buddy Stephen, we'll keep preaching. They're unbelievable. On that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen, made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching 
the word. The golden nuggets of Stephen's sermon. Wherever God's people go, God goes with them. God has never, ever been tied to any one place. He is sovereign and he is free. Wherever his people are, there he is. He's with Abraham in Mesopotamia. He's with Joseph in Egypt. He's with Moses in Midian in the wilderness. And even when, according to his instruction, they built him a house for his presence to dwell in a special way, no house can contain him. Remember, where are we in the book of Acts? The church has been birthed in Jerusalem, expanded in Jerusalem, but get, where are we going next? We're going to begin to extend outside of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and Galilee and to Antioch and Asia Minor and GNC and all the way to Rome and to the ends of the earth. God was with his people wherever they were throughout the Old Testament. And now in the New Covenant, he will be with his people wherever they go in the New. This is exactly what the early church found as they began to take the gospel to Judea and to Samaria and on and further as they go. They found that God is with them and God is working through them. I call Stephen a great commission hero. The great commission is all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. But if I leave home and I go to an uncomfortable, scary place, what can I count on? You can count on that God will be with you. He's always been with His people wherever they were. And if maybe I might be not speaking out of turn, even more so now, that we make up His, his temple, His dwelling place. The Holy Spirit of God resides within us in a way distinct from even in Old Testament days. Wherever you go, God goes. And it may be to the ends of the earth, but it may be back home into your neighborhood. It may be into that cubicle on Monday morning. It may be into that classroom week in and week out. It may be out on that ball field or into that gym. Wherever God's people go, He goes. He's not tied to a, to a temple in Jerusalem. He's not tied to this building, I can assure you. Wherever you go, God goes. And whenever God's people die, Jesus receives them. What if I go? And what if they kill me? I don't know if Jesus stands every time one of his people dies. Maybe he stands for the for the really good ones, you know. Maybe he stands for guys like Stephen. Maybe he stood for Billy Graham. Maybe he, maybe he stands for those who, 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 who die for his name. But even if he doesn't stand for folks like you and me, 
He welcomes us home. What if I take God on His word that He will be with me wherever I go, and if I go, what if I lose? What if I lose my life? Welcome. Welcome. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He is at the Father's right hand. He is alive and He is well. He knows exactly where you and I are. And whenever our day comes, welcome home. So what? As Easter's just around the corner, every time this year, this time of year, you know that I encourage you try and invite some friends and invite some neighbors, invite some family to be with us on Easter Sunday. And this, this year's no different. And so playing off of this text a bit, playing off of a, a couple things I heard this week, but I'm just playing off of the whole maybe tenor of the Word of God. Three things for you and me. Number one, As we head into this Easter season and this opportunity, if we will, to invite friends and invite family and invite neighbors to come and and be with us and to hear the gospel, pray with audacity. I was with a meeting with a group of pastors here in Katy on Tuesday. And one of our brothers, one of the brothers shared a, a quote. The theology of the quote is no good. The point of the quote is powerful. What are you praying for right now that wakes God up in the middle of the night with cold sweats wondering, how am I going to answer that one? God doesn't sleep. God doesn't sweat anything. He never has to wonder how he's going to accomplish his purposes. You get the point, huh? Boy, are you, am I, praying anything audaciously? Especially when it comes to the mission of Jesus. Who are you praying for? What are you praying for? So audaciously that God wakes up in the middle of the night in cold sweats and says, how in the world am I going to answer that prayer? If you will, over these next couple few weeks, pray audaciously for the men, women, and children in your life who you suspect are far from God. And as you do, pray for yourself that God might give you opportunity and courage. Second, go out with expectancy. As you go out these doors, as you pray at home and with audacity, and then as you go out your front doors, go out with expectancy because wherever you go, God goes. When you leave here, God doesn't stay here. 
When you leave your home, he's not stuck. Into your neighborhoods, into your workplaces, into your ball teams, into your classrooms, God goes with you. And he is at work in the world, Jesus said, the Spirit of God, convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He is at work far more than you and I give him credit for. Finally, well, where you live, work, and play in passion. So what does that mean, Mitch? I'm new here. What do you mean passion? Where you live, work, and play, you might, those of you who are students, you might replace work with study. But when we say passion, we, we realize that some of you have places and pockets in the city that you're passionate about, the homeless or teen pregnancies or the hungry. And you're working among those people. You're passionate about that. So as you go to those places to serve, go with expectancy. And then finally, invite with tenacity. Here's the point on this one. The meeting that I was a part of on Tuesday, it's, a, it's an evangelism cohort. It's a group of pastors here in our city. And Rick Richardson from Wheaton College comes down to meet with us. And we're talking about how to be, to grow our own personal witness, just personally. And then we've begun to talk about how, how do we create a culture or how do we help our churches be, be um, missional congregations, if you will. And there's a, there's, there's a, their research is showing that there's five things that churches that are reaching people with the gospel do. One of these days, maybe I'll share them all with you. But one of the things churches do, according to the research coming out of the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton, those churches out there that are, that are reaching people who don't know Jesus with the gospel and, and seeing them put their faith in Jesus Christ and then get connected to the local church for ongoing discipleship and life change, they are an inviting culture. Meaning, their people invite friends. They invite their neighbors. They invite the people they work with. They invite, they invite, they invite, they invite. Now, he made a good point to us. He said, listen, it assumes two things. Number one, that your people love Jesus. And I said, I, I think that's true. But it also assumes that they love your church. I said, oh, I hope so. When you love Jesus and you love your church, you're more apt to invite someone. So it makes me nervous. To think that maybe you come to Redeemer because you can tolerate it, you know? But you're not so excited about bringing a friend. And surely we can do better. But if ever we're going to be a place that reaches people far from God, it will be because God does a work in our hearts to start inviting people. Hey, come with us. Come, come join us on Easter morning. So, let's pray with audacity. Let's go out with expectancy. Let's invite with tenacity. I mean tenacity. I mean maybe just invite a lot of people. Invite that neighbor and invite that neighbor and invite that friend and invite and invite and invite and invite. And who knows? Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for the legacy of this man enshrined in the pages of Scripture who reminds us that you've never been tied to any one place. Wherever God's people go, you go. We need to remember that. And the legacy of his death. That whenever one of your, your little birds falls, you are there to receive. And so, help us to be courageous Christians. Because our God is with us and He will lead us home. And Lord, if there's any here this morning who do not know the love of God in Jesus Christ, maybe they've only felt the, the law of God, knowing that your law is righteous and, and good, but knowing that they have so fallen short, all they feel is guilt and condemnation. Maybe they've tried to clean themselves up. Maybe they've tried to earn their way back, but they find themselves helpless and desperate. What a good place to be. God, help them see that indeed your ways are perfect and your ways are right, and indeed they are sinners. But the message is not shape up. The message is that you have loved the world so much that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to live a life they couldn't live, die upon the cross to pay the penalty for their sins. Rise alive forevermore. And that by turning to him, they can experience forgiveness. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. They can experience a new kind of life as your Holy Spirit comes within them. They can experience new joys as the promises of God to His people begin to make their way into their soul. Might you draw them right now to put their faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we go, as we leave these doors, help us to pray with audacity, to go out with expectancy, and invite with tenacity. And we will pray this in the strong and the great and the holy name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.